you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to open it to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. No longer missions. I know some of you are deeply saddened that you don't get to see that Go and Make Disciples video anymore. Uh, hopefully you've memorized it though, because uh, I know I really drilled you on that for a whole month. <laughs> but now we're, we're moving out of missions, a focus on missions, but we're not stopping missions, if that makes sense. We, we never stop missions, in fact. We're a a mission-driven church. That's the way that the church is supposed to be. We, we are always on mission, and we are always making disciples of all nations. So Matthew chapter 5. I, I once heard a, a pastor tell me a long time ago when I was you know, praying and dreaming about becoming a, a pastor and a minister and a preacher that whenever you have that opportunity, he just said, preach Jesus. Just preach Jesus. And uh, that's what... I, I would imagine, I, I know that we've been doing, but um, the Sermon on the Mount is all Jesus. It's, it's all red letters for three chapters. It's, it's everything Jesus. And so, brace yourselves, church, because uh, for the next 12 weeks, we're going to study the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I'm not going to challenge you to memorize three chapters, although you certainly could do that if you want. Uh, so for the next three months, we're going to preach Jesus. And... Uh, we're going we're gonna to study the Sermon on the Mount. So what is the Sermon on the Mount? I mean, is it like a sermon? Uh, did, did Jesus you know, stand up and, and preach from a pulpit? Is that what it is? Uh, many people say that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is, is without question the greatest sermon ever preached. Many scholars actually believe that the Sermon on the Mount wasn't necessarily taught all in one setting. Uh, it's so rich and so deep. Um, how could anybody process the entire Sermon on the Mount in one uh, sitting. Nonetheless, it, it's Jesus' manifesto. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's, it's uh, His mission statement. It's His instruction manual on how we are to live as the church of Jesus Christ. John Stott said this, the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood and certainly it is the least obeyed. Now, why is it the least obeyed if it's the most, uh, if, if it's the, the best teaching of Jesus? Why is it the, the least obeyed? If it's all red letters, it's everything Jesus is saying to His church on how we're supposed to live, why would it be the least obeyed? I would argue that it's the least obeyed because it's so counterculture. It is so, the Sermon on the Mount is so counterculture. It's Jesus, what Jesus is doing is He's changing the game. He's uh, for those who follow the God of these, these Scriptures. Can you imagine Jesus is a Jew, he's a Palestinian Jew, uh, teaching to Jews? This isn't, okay, this is Jesus teaching to Christians. He was teaching to Jews, and it was so counter-culture. Jesus is flipping the script on how to live life. It's so radical, even. That's what often people say about the Sermon on the Mount, is it's, it's radical Christianity. But when you really get down to it, it's not radical at all. It's biblical. It's biblical Christianity, the Sermon on the Mount. And it does. It goes against the grain. It's, it's the opposite way to live in the world. The opposite of the world, rather. And so Jesus, what He's doing is He's changing the game. He's flipping the script. And uh, this had, was, had to have been completely and utterly confusing to His Jewish audience. Jesus is introducing a new era. A, a new covenant is being established. It's and really the kind of mentality that Jesus has here is uh, it's not about being first. It's about being last. This isn't, if you've seen the movie uh, Talladega Nights, if you ain't first, you're last. Anybody seen that movie? Oh my gosh, okay. Well, thank you. It, so it's not about being first, it's about being last. And Jesus says, the last shall be first. That's what Jesus says. And so Jesus says some absolute radical things in the Sermon on the Mount. Things like, uh, love your enemies and uh, pray for those who persecute you. Who wants to do that? Love my enemies? I want to hate my enemies. Because they hate me, I want to hate them back. Because they want to persecute me, they want to hurt me, they want me dead. Well, I, I want revenge. I don't want to pray for them. I don't want to uh, love them. But Jesus says, no. I want you to love them. And I want you to pray for them. He says, you think murder is bad? You think it's a sin to murder? Well, I tell you, if you have anger in your heart towards another person, or if you have hatred in your heart towards another person, you've already sinned. 
way before <laughs> something like as aggressive and as serious as murder. It says you've already committed sin. You, you think adultery is sin? Well, I say to you, if you even have lust in your heart for another person, you have already committed sin. So it's so counter culture. If you think about our lives and, and where we live in the world today in 2020, it is very, the Sermon on the Mount is very counter culture. But it's who we are. We are a counter culture people. We are uh, set apart by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says about you. If you're in Christ in this room, God of the universe says you are set apart. You're different. You are to act different, look different, talk different. Look different is, you know, maybe not. I mean, you should look different in the way you act and talk. You don't have to dress different. You can dress however you want, I guess. I mean, unless you're a child, you have to dress how your parents dress you, of course. But, but God has called us and He has set us apart by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's incredible. That's profound, in fact, that you have been set apart by the God of the universe. In fact, throughout history, God has called a people to Himself. From Genesis to Revelation and everything in between, it's God's purpose in this planet to call a people to Himself. For His purposes. To be different. That's who you are, Christian. You are to be different. This isn't my suggestion. It's not uh, me to encourage you to be different. This is Jesus Himself, the Creator and Sustainer of the universe, is calling you to be different. It's why He set you apart. To be holy as He is holy. And when God, think about it this way, when God rescued His people um, from slavery in Egypt, God made this abundantly clear to His people. I am the Lord your God. And I have set you apart. You won't look anything like Egypt where you're coming from. And you're not going to look anything like Canaan where you're going. I'm setting you apart. You'll be different. You'll look different. You'll follow my statutes and obey my law. That's what God is saying to us. That's what Jesus is saying. We are to obey His law. To obey His word. And what do we know about Scripture, especially in the Old Testament? Often, in the Old Testament, God's people rebelled against God, right? They got stupid, honestly. They wanted to appoint their own king instead of God being their king. This is what you, you see often in the Old Testament. They wanted to be like every other nation Israel did at different times throughout history. And the Bible says in Psalm 106 that they mixed with other nations and learned to do as they did. They wanted to do as the other nations were doing. They wanted to be like other nations. They wanted to appoint their own king and God and Lord and ruler instead of God. And honestly, not much has changed, if you really think about it. As the church, as God's people, it is so easy for us to get caught up in the ways of this world. We are all at risk of being caught in the ways of this world. Following the course of this world, Ephesians 2 says, following the prince of the power of the air, the devil. He's the orchestrator of everything evil. He's the orchestrator of everything wicked. He's the prince of the power of the air. And we are all at risk for following the course of this world, the patterns of this world, to do and to be as everyone else is, uh, to fit in is to not be left out. We want to fit in, don't we? Do an evaluation on your life. How often have you wanted to fit in? Whatever that group may have been. You want to fit in. To do and to be like everyone else. To, to, to fit in is to not be left out. It's what we seek. It's what we crave. And, and so we can come to church. I mean, we're here right now. We can put on this facade and we can play religion. We can allow ourselves to, to be immersed in the things of this church, but because we're so immersed in the things of the world, it's easy, church, to have one foot in the church, one foot into religion, and one foot in the world. God sees right through that. God sees right through that. We can look, act, talk, be, do, smell, just like the rest of the world, and still come into this place. And you know what? God sees right through it. He sees right through every single one of us. Here's what the last thing any Christian wants to hear. But you are no different than everybody else. No Christian wants to hear that. You are no different than everybody else. 
but the One who has spoken heaven and earth into existence has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the good news of Scripture. He's established His kingdom. The God of the universe. A new era has dawned. And when Jesus did this, when He established His ministry, the climate and the culture of His day was interesting to say the least. The temple system had failed in Jerusalem. The Pharisees were trying to uh, gain political power all the while being oppressed by the Roman Empire, the strongest uh, existing power in the world, the Roman Empire. So the Pharisees are, are seeking, uh, they're seeking power. They're seeking influence, political power, all the while being oppressed by the Roman Empire. And during all of that, this is what's interesting, up north in Galilee, this nobody named Jesus of Nazareth is causing massive ripples. Jesus, he, uh, he didn't go to seminary. He didn't graduate from Bible college. Uh, his credentials don't match that of the religious elite. He's just a carpenter from Nazareth. Uh, and up, up in Galilee at this very same time that the religious leaders are trying to rise in power, being oppressed by the Roman Empire, Jesus is drawing massive crowds. Why? He doesn't have their credentials. He's not a well-known Pharisee or a religious leader by any means. Why is he drawing massive crowds? Well, it's because he's healing people. Uh, it's because uh, he's teaching with authority and, and people are gaining notice. Jesus is doing supernatural things that nobody else can do. That's why he's drawing crowds. And this is where we are uh, at the beginning of chapter 5. So let's look at chapter 5. Verse 1, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them. It's funny, these crowds of people are coming to Jesus because he's doing the supernatural. People that, uh, they, these people know people who have been healed by Jesus, and they're, they're coming to him. Thousands of people. He's doing things nobody else can do. Yet when they came to Jesus for the supernatural, what they got was his teaching. Far better than the supernatural. They received and heard the Word of God being taught. A guy by the name of R.C. Foster said this, The Sermon on the Mount presents the highest ideals of living the world has ever received in the most beautiful language ever conceived. And so church, for the next 12 weeks, as we study the Sermon on the Mount, as we pray accordingly to the Sermon on the Mount and your prayer guides that you should have received when you came in, my prayer is that we would take serious what Jesus says especially in this season of life, in 2020. That's one of the biggest hashtags right now, 2020, because of the craziness, because of the uncertainty across the globe. What if the church of Jesus Christ actually took serious what Jesus Himself says in the Sermon on the Mount? Three chapters of red letters. How many of you have heard throughout your Christian life the red letters? Go read the red letters of the Bible. This is all red letters. The sovereign God, creator and sustainer of the universe is speaking to us today in 2020 through the Sermon on the Mount. What if we as the church took these words serious? And that's my prayer for us. That we would really, even in your alone time, even in uh, Monday through Saturday, you would, you would take, take time to study it yourself. Learn more about what Jesus is really getting at here in the Sermon on the Mount. Because this is what He calls us to live. This is how He calls us to live and be and act in a world that is so counter culture than what he's actually saying. Verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So these Beatitudes, by the way, we could really, really preach the Beatitudes for like eight weeks. It's, it's been done. It, but because we're spending already a lot of time in the Sermon on the Mount, we're just going to condense it to today. But he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed is the key word in this passage. There's no doubt about what it means. In, in the Greek, the word is makarios. It means happy. It means fortunate. It means be encouraged. I've even seen congratulations. Congratulations. Uh, you're poor in spirit. How ridiculous does that sound? Happy are those who are spiritually busted is what Jesus is saying. In other words, it's not until you and I realize our need for God that we experience the blessing of God. So happy are you, church, when you're spiritually busted. 
Things won't change as a follower of Jesus for us until we realize that we are nothing without Christ. We are nothing without Christ. Happy are those who realize that they need Him. Happy are you when you realize how deeply you need God. So unless God is at the center of our lives, we receive less blessing. It's basically on you. Do you hunger for Him? It's when you get out of the funk of just breathing oxygen, just being alive, just surviving, just living like everybody else. It's when you make a decision that God becomes the very center of your life. Your spouse can be a very important part of your life, no doubt. Kids, obviously. Making money, having a job, those are all important, but unless God Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, uh, the very author of the Scriptures, until He becomes the center of your life, you will miss out greatly on what God has for your life. We have to understand that we are sinners falling short of the glory of God. And it's God that we need to cause us to come alive with Christ. Without God, we are spiritually busted. Isaiah 6 says this, it's all over. I'm doomed, for I'm a sinful man, and I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips, yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. Throughout Scripture, you see that it isn't until we humble ourselves and understand our lowly condition apart from God as humans, under God's sovereign rule, that we actually experience the joy that God has for us. God has given us the opportunity to have joy, to be happy in this life. It's really, it's, it's, when, it's in that moment of your life when you empty out the pockets of your pants and you have literally nothing else to offer but lint balls. Nobody's going to accept lint balls for anything. So it is with, with your life. It's when you literally have nothing else to offer. You have zero to give. That's when God pours down His blessing on you. It's when we're spiritually poor that God blesses us. Happy are those who are spiritually busted. This is the kind of happiness that it's not based on your comfort. It's not based on your circumstances. It's not based on whether you make more money or have a better job or have a, a bigger house. Or, it's not based on material things at all. If, if happiness was based on material things, if it was based on comfort, then you would be searching for happiness your entire life. And you will never be fulfilled because you're just searching for the next thing. If you finally get that job or you make that money you feel like you've needed to make, all that's going to happen is throughout time is you're going to be searching for how can I get more. More, more, more. And it never stops. And it won't stop. You'll always be searching for happiness. Jesus is saying when you express a need in me, knowing I'm the only source to fill your searching and yearning heart. You think you're blessed when you have a bunch of money? No, blessed are those who need me, Jesus is saying, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Whether you mourn because of the loss of a loved one, so surely what that means, it's also economic injustice, personal sorrow, you can mourn over personal sorrow. Here's the cool thing. When you mourn, you have God's ear. I think that's amazing. God Almighty, seated upon a throne in the heavenly places, being worshipped by thousands of angels. The Bible says, when you mourn, you will be comforted. You have God's ear. He is listening to you. 400 years, Israel was enslaved by Egypt. And then one day, and they've been crying out to God for, for a long time. And then one day, God shows up and speaks to Moses through a burning bush. And what does He say? I have heard their cry. I have heard their cry. To mourn it means you'll be comforted. That's an incredible thing. You have the ear of Almighty God. The mourning here is not just a bereavement kind of mourning. Like, like mourning the loss of a loved one. Certainly God will comfort you in that. There's no doubt about that. This is mourning the loss of your own innocence. This is mourning the loss of righteousness in your life. Mourning uh, the loss of your own self-respect. This is actually mourning over the sorrow of repentance. You know you've done wrong. 
You've got God's Word. You know as a Christian you're set apart. You're called to obey His statutes and, and, and obey His law. But you're walking in a different way. You know you've done wrong. Deep down within, you know you've done wrong. And it's when you come to that realization that you weep over it. You mourn over the sorrow of your own repentance. When I was in, I, I want to say fifth grade, I could have been a little younger. I really hope I wasn't any older. <laughs> um, I was playing out in the street, because that's what kids did in the 90s. We played in the street. And uh, I had a baseball bat. Some of y'all are confused because I was a kid in the 90s, but I was. Uh, I had a baseball bat and a golf ball, and I was out in the street. And uh, I bounced that golf ball, and you know where this is going. I took a swing like King Griffey Jr., also a player in the 90s. And I went across the main street, over the fence where a bunch of residential houses are. And the golf ball busted a neighbor's window. So what, 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 what does a kid do in that situation? Do they go to their mom and say, Mom, I just, you know, I was doing something really stupid, and you know, I hit somebody's window, and I just, we should go over there and tell them it was me, and we, we got to, you know, obviously you're going to have to pay for it, Mom, because I don't have any money because I'm a kid. And, uh, is that what I did? No. I dropped the bat, and I ran inside, and I sat on the couch. I acted like everything was cool. I was calm and collective as I could be. See, that's what happens when, when we're living in sin. Uh, when we get around other people, we just act like it's all cool. We're collective. Nobody else knows. You know, my mom didn't see it happen, so she doesn't know that I'm doing it or that I did it. And so I'm sitting on the couch, and I'm huffing and puffing. And I, I just I remember my mom saying, what's going on? I said, nothing. Uh, so obviously, you know, I lied and point is, the anxiety that you have, the stress, uh, the fact that you know you've done wrong, and you're, you're afraid of getting caught. You're afraid of getting found out, and that's a tough place to be in. Finally, when, you know, word gets out, it, it, I did it, I was responsible, and all of that. Although I, I am punished for that, although I, I uh, may have missed out on something else because of this thing that I did that was bad, there's freedom that comes from that. There's freedom of, of letting it be out in the open. You know about it now. There's freedom in that. The same is with repentance. When you know you're wrong and you have sinned against God, you're holding it in by yourself, it will rob you. That steals your joy in life. But when you come to another brother and sister in the faith, or multiple people in the church, you say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling in this area. I look at pornography all the time. None of you know about it because I do it at home uh, in secret. Or, you know, I really, I treat my spouse horribly. I yell at her or I yell at him. And I treat him bad. And, and you know, you don't see it though because it's at home. And when I come to church, you have no idea. But it's been eating me inside because the more I hear God's word preached, the more I'm convicted that I have been sinning against God and not living rightly by God. And it's killing me inside. And I can just tell it's robbing the joy that God has for me. And so I need to tell you. I need to repent. I need you to pray for me. And let me just tell you, there is freedom in that. There is freedom in that. So it's mourning over the sorrow of your own repentance. It's weeping, saying, God, I'm an unclean person. Living in an unclean world and I have been conformed and I want to come back to you. Purify my heart, O God. Cleanse me of all unrighteousness that I may walk rightly in your sight. And maybe some of you need to pray that prayer. Maybe some of you need to come to another person in the church and you need to repent of your sin. Weep with them. Let them weep with you. How great is our God that He is rich in mercy. Full of grace. Here's what's amazing. When you actually recognize your need for God in your life, you actually want to do something about it. That's where it starts. That's where it starts. Your life will not change. Somebody needs to hear this. Your life will not change if you don't mourn the way it is now. And if you're not wanting to change, then you're not going to cry out to Him. But blessed are those who mourn over the sorrow of repentance. Blessed are those who mourn for the loss of a loved one, for they will be comforted. God is happy to oblige you when you mourn. For His Word says that you will be comforted. And you have His ear. Verse 5, Blessed are the meek, 
for they shall inherit the earth. So here's what meekness, meekness is. It's freedom from pretension. Freedom from pretension. So what I mean is, if you've been saved by the power of the gospel, you know, saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus, that's how you have right standing with God. If that's what you believe about you and how you got and received your salvation, you cannot walk with any swagger. You don't have the right to. You didn't do anything. God did it all for you. 100%. God. 0% you. But that's the beauty of the gospel. We didn't have to do anything. He did it for us when He died on the cross for the sins of the world. Those nails were pierced in His body for you. And so you don't have the right to walk with any swagger, Christian. You didn't pay for anything. Jesus did. That's the beauty of the Scriptures. To be meek is to be humble. It's to walk in humility. It's like you walk in a room and you never own the place, actually. You're a business owner. You walk in the business that you own. You don't own it. It's all God because you're humble. You don't even own your house, men. Your wife owns the house. Right? That's the mentality. You never walk in a room and you own the place. You're too humble. You're filled with humility, which by God's grace He gives. That's meekness. You come to learn. You, you come to learn. You want to grow. You're not afraid to ask people questions. You're not afraid to ask people questions. One of the, I think one of the biggest compliments I've ever received in my life is a professor, he's you know, in his late 60s now uh, um, at our church. and For, for years, I, have, I text him and I call him, asking him questions. Questions that he might on the, under, on the other end think, you should know that. You just graduated Bible college. But he never does. In love, he answers those questions. But a compliment he said to somebody else as I was standing in the room is, this guy will talk your ear off. He's always asking questions. That's what it means to be humble. You, you want to learn. You want to grow. You, you never reach a moment in your life where you just you have all the knowledge. God has just blessed you with all knowledge. You don't need to talk to anybody. You're not, the conversations you have with people, are you're giving advice. You're giving knowledge. You're not receiving. To be humble is to always be learning. It's to always be growing. It's a sense that you've never even arrived. You've never, there's not a point in your Christian life where you just walk into a room and say, I've arrived. I'm finally here. I've done it. I haven't sinned in, in 24 hours. You thought I was going to say like a year, didn't you? you? You've never arrived as a Christian. Jesus says, He's the one who reached down into the muck and mire out of the slimy pit of despair and pulled you out. He set you on a rock and gave you a, a firm place to stand. You did not do that for yourself. Jesus did that. And when you know that deep within your bones, it makes you meek. Because you didn't do it. So meekness, humility, it's, it's being surrendered to God. It's letting Him be in control. That's what it means to be humble. But people have a problem with control, don't they? You can find that out on, on social media. You could literally pull out your phone right now and somebody is blasting another person on Facebook, Twitter. Or people don't like this or that. And, and certainly there are things happening in our country that, that shouldn't be. But it's no reason for us as the church to go on and blast those people for what they're doing. We're humble. Or meek. And when you go on social media and you try to strong arm people because you're living right and they're not living right, that's not meekness. You may win an argument, but you will not win favor with God. And you should care more about the favor of God than the favor of other people. What's interesting is Blessed are, are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This is, if you think about all throughout history, God's people have been pushed out of their own land time and time again. 
The church has been persecuted for thousands of years. Yet, somehow, some way, we just continue to multiply. All over the earth. The fastest growing churches in the world are in the most persecuted places. It's as if God has something to do with that. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The world is God's. And people were created in His image. And He is all over the world setting a people apart for His purposes. And when the Holy Spirit of the living God makes His home in a person, that's how the church multiplies, even in the most persecuted areas. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled Simply put, when you begin in your life to live for God, not for yourself, not for others, but for God, you will begin to hunger and thirst for the things of God. Not the things of this world, which we all do crave at times. If we're honest, we all have done that. But, but not craving the things of this world, not cra- craving vices of this world, all, all the different vices. Think about your own vice. What is it? Crave him more than your Heavenly Father. Before I was a Christian, um, my whole life was immersed in the movies. I was so in love with movies. I wanted to be an actor. and um, I, knew, I knew all the actors in all the movies. I knew the movie stars. I knew all of the actors who maybe only get a couple of lines. I knew who they were. I knew them by name. I knew who was directing the movie long before it ever came out when it was just being put on paper. I knew who was producing the movie. I knew how much money uh, the movie was going to cost to make. I knew where they were filming it. I knew all of those things because I was so immersed in it. I once saw eight movies in theaters in 15 days. That's a lot of money. (laughs) Um, That's why I failed college the first time. (laughs) Uh, Movies was my life. I was immersed in it. I loved movies. I knew everything there was to know about movies. And then I became a Christian. And I thought, well, I didn't know what I was going to do with my life as an adult. I still didn't know as a Christian my life is changing. Maybe I'll be an actor. I really thought that. Maybe I'll be an actor, and I probably won't be a movie star, but maybe I can be like a, like a Christian faith-based uh, actor. I certainly won't make it, you know, big, uh, but maybe I could do that. I really thought that. And what happened is the more I started to follow Jesus, the more I got involved with small groups, home groups, life groups, the more I got um, involved with being with Christians, praying for one another, learning. Uh, the more I started to read this on my own, the more I started to hear it preached. I would come on Sundays, Sunday after Sunday. The more my life started to change. It wasn't that I, I, I once finally just stepped into this box and was like, all right, everything God and nothing else. Movies, zero. God, everything. That wasn't it. God slowly began to change the desires of your heart. There's a scripture I love. It's one of my favorite. Delight yourself, Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now, I used to think, Okay, I want to be an actor. So God's going to let me be an actor. And He's going to bless it. And I'm not saying you can't be a Christian and be an actor. That's not what I'm saying. But what happens is the more you begin to follow Jesus, the more you become immersed in the Christian life. You take Jesus' words serious. All of Scripture serious. The more your life changes because you are set apart. You're called to be different. It's not like you're purposely trying to be different, although we, we do do that. But by God's grace through the presence of the Holy Spirit, He begins to change who we are. And His desires, they become our desires. And so church, the more that you actually hunger for God in your life, the more you, you thirst for His righteousness, the more you will become like Jesus. And your desires will become His desires. That prayer guide that you get every week, I don't know how often you guys use it. My prayer and hope is that you use it every day. One of the prayer prompts on there, again, for the second week, is praying for the persecuted church or praying for an unreached people group. You know, maybe you, you weren't as familiar with unreached peoples until the missions month. And that was kind of the whole purpose of it, was to engage us with Scripture and what it means to make disciples of every people group in the world. So why would I give a prayer prompt for unreached peoples? People that you and I will probably never meet because God cares about it. 
It's the desire of our God for every tribe, tongue, and nation to hear the Gospel. And if God cares about that, shouldn't we care about that? So it's the more you immerse yourself in the Christian life, it's the more you follow Jesus, the more you read and study God's Word, the more you get involved in church, when you get plugged into a small group and you're doing life with other Christians, the more you do those things, the more the desires of God's heart will become the desires of your heart. And that's pretty amazing. So here, let me ask you a question. Do you hunger and thirst for the things of God? Now, I know you're here, so obviously you might be thinking, well, Nate, I'm here. I'm here every Sunday. But do you hunger and thirst for the things of God Monday through Saturday? What's your, what's your day like? Do you open up the Scriptures? Do you, do you pray? Do you spend time in prayer? Do you hunger for God in every aspect of your life? And we're all working on this. We're all working on this. We're all being sanctified together. We all, we all miss days. You know, we, we all, there's days when we pray less. There's days when we pray more. There's days when we read this more or less or not at all. We all go through that. But there's something that God, by His grace, does in our lives It just brings us back to that place where I want to pursue righteousness. I want to be right with God. And yes, you are by Jesus and and His sacrifice on the cross. You have been given eternal life, but there is a, a, a process in our life called sanctification. It's where every day we're growing and becoming more like Jesus. Do you hunger for that? In your life, do you want to be more like Jesus? Or are you spending too much time on social media? Or are you spending too much time binge watching TV shows. Now, those aren't bad things in moderation, right? But if we're doing way, way, way more of one thing and way, 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 way less of another, social media, movies, uh, whatever it is, you pick it, and less of spending time with God, that's too far of a gap. You've got to find a median. And hopefully, hopefully the desire of your heart is you want more of Him every day in your life. So if you're spending too much time doing the things that God is not involved in, but you do truly hunger for Jesus, then eat. This is available to all of us at any moment. And even more than that, it's, well, it's on your phone. You can pull up Scriptures on your phone. You, there's never a moment, because we all always carry our phones. If you don't have a phone, um, maybe you have a different way to access other than uh, a physical Bible, but we, we all go, everywhere we go, we have our phones, most of us. You're always, um, you're all, there's always an opportunity for you to have the Scriptures. Another question is, are you involved in a small group or a Bible study outside of this setting on a Sunday? Are you doing life with other people in this room? Are you praying together with one another? Do they know where you struggle? Have you, have you, have you shared those concerns with other Christians so that they may come alongside you in prayer? Do you spend time with other Christians outside of this setting? Care about the things God cares about. That's what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's what it means to hunger and thirst for our God. Verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. When you are truly living the life that God has called you to live, mercy will just flow from you. It will. It will just flow from you. It the closer you are to God, the more overflowing love and compassion and mercy for others will be. No matter the situation, no matter the circumstances, no matter the season, no matter if it's 2019 or 2020, love and mercy and compassion will just flow from your life the closer you are to Jesus. This made me think of uh, the WWJD bracelets. You remember those? I don't remember if that was a 90s thing or early 2000s. I know I was a kid and I wore them. I mean, they were cool. Everybody was wearing them, even non-Christians. They, they were cool colors. They were just, bracelets was a cool thing, I guess. But it made me think of that. What would Jesus do in a certain situation? It's not a bad question to ask. This also made me think of, uh, you know, when you're in traffic, right? We've all been there. Somebody cuts you off in traffic. All you want to do is honk your horn and tell them you're going to put your foot where the sun don't shine type thing. This is... This is Radical, isn't it? To, to not be angry at someone who, who, who gets in front of you in traffic. Maybe, uh, th- this is the worst for me, is somebody's going slow in a traffic line and, and uh, they make the light, but you don't. But if they had gone a little sooner, you would have made the light. 
like without question, you would have made that light, but they get, they, they're going. They're get, wherever they're going, they're getting there faster than you because you got stuck. But it was because of them. You know, we play the blame game when it comes to traffic. And you know what? I'm right in the center of it. I got nothing to hide. Especially in the, in the, in the moments that I just described. It makes me mad. Oh, I get angry. If you just would have gone a little faster, I would have made it too. We could have gotten there at the same time. And so it's, it's silly moments like that, though, if you think about it. You get angry for something like that, and I'm, it's me too. Um, but that, that pours into another area of your life, that anger, that frustration. It will pour into another aspect of your day. Um, you know, for, for those of you who are married, maybe you, you get in arguments, disagreements with your spouse. Sometimes it turns into, not a fist fight, but, you know, it might as well be because it's, you know, it gets loud and, you know, it's like, yo, we're, this is crazy. We need to dial it down a tone. And then you go out and you separate and you're doing one thing and they're doing another thing. And it's, it's when, when I have that with my wife, just an argument, a disagreement, it, it changes all of myself. I am not the same person. I am not the same person. I have to go back to her and talk through it. Ask for forgiveness. Even pray. Because I am a completely different person. I am off my game completely if I am not right with my wife. Or maybe it's the same if you're not right with your husband. But consider that with God. If you're walking this earth as a Christian, somebody who identifies as a follower of Christ, you ask me, I'm a Christian? Absolutely, I'm a Christian, 100%. I own a Bible, I go to church, I'm a Christian. But if internally you are doing something behind closed doors, you are not following Jesus, living rightly by God. He sees right through it. And the beauty of our God is that happy are those who walk into the mercy God gives. Because what happens is we give mercy. We give mercy because we have received mercy from our God. That's how that works. Mercy, and I need to improve on that area, by the way, because the traffic thing is a serious thing. The point is it's a small thing. We get angry over small things, and it pours into another area of our lives. The Bible says that mercy triumphs over judgment. And it looks better on Christians than anger. Verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Some of you feel blind right now. There are different seasons when we all experience it. You can't see God in your life. I, I don't feel like God is blessing me in this season of my life. And I know the feeling. You don't feel like you hear God. Is He even listening to me? I'm praying and I'm praying and I'm praying, but, but I just... Is he, does He hear me? Is there something I'm doing that's preventing Him from blessing me? Is there something I'm doing that's preventing God from hearing me when I cry out to Him? I feel blind. I don't see God in my life. Is He even there? Well, maybe your sight is blurry. Maybe your sight is blurry. Maybe you're the reason you can't see God because you're contaminated with your own sin. This is heavy stuff. This is, we all find ourselves in this situation. We can't, it's, like, it's like muddy water that's gone brown and yucky. It's blurry. And it's nasty. And you can't see God, maybe because there's been contamination with our own sin. So maybe it's time for you to make some changes in your life. I'm speaking to an individual. Purify your heart. Purify your heart. Stop sinning. Just stop it. Seek help. Seek recovery. See, sometimes it's hard to stop sinning, especially if it's an addiction of some kind. That's when we seek help. The church of Jesus Christ, we're a family. That's the whole point of life groups. That's, that's where we get brothers and sisters, right? You hear brothers and sisters, you know, brother in, in the faith, and my sister in the Lord. Why? Because we are in the same family. We are children of God. We belong to the same Father in Heaven. He is our Father. He's not my Father. He's our Father. 
And so if you have a, a sin problem, if you're, you feel like you're not seeing God in your life, seek help. Seek out the church. Ask for prayer. Go. Do you have accountability? Another question, do you have accountability? Can't see God in your life. Consider where you're at in your life. And maybe it's just you need help pursuing Jesus. You're not quite sure how to pray, so you need help. You're not quite sure how to read the Scriptures, so you need help. Pursue help. Pursue help, whatever it is. Verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Those who make peace. The people that make peace. It doesn't mean that you're weak. It doesn't mean that you're a pushover. It means that you're strong. You're resolute. You're you're convicted even. To make peace is to be godly. Simply put. To make peace is to be godly. Again, this goes back to getting in an argument with a friend or a relative or a neighbor or your, your parent or your spouse. And for me, it changes. It just changes everything about me. I'm not quite the same. I need to make peace with my wife. And maybe you need to make peace with someone today. Something's just not right. You're not the same person until you've made peace. Maybe you need to pray with that person. Maybe you need to ask that person for forgiveness. Because if there's no peace, that's when the enemy comes in to destroy. Anything that's been severed, all the enemy has to do is completely break it. Completely destroy it. It's easy. But if you make peace, that's when you're strong. Verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When Jesus established His kingdom, it caused an uproar. It really did. All of the powerful people, the religious elite, they hated it. They did not like what Jesus was doing and it caused an uproar. But Jesus says, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. That's what He said. If they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. If they don't like you, if they don't like me, they're not going to like you. But if you want to be happy, if you really want to walk in the fullness of life that Jesus offers, and you want to stand firm in your face of opposition, because it's coming, opposition, persecution, it's never an impossible thing in our lives as a church. You might know somebody who dislikes you for whatever reason because of your faith. No matter how the world changes, no matter uh, what happens in culture, even in 2020, even rolling into 2021, as, as followers of Jesus, we stand firm and we follow Jesus no matter the cost, no matter what opposition we see or experience. It's what sets us apart, church. It's what makes us different. We have a, a rock-solid foundation in Jesus Christ. That's what sets us apart from every other religion. When opposition and persecution comes, we stand firm. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are hated and reviled because of me. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Jesus has already established His kingdom on this earth. We're just waiting for it to be fulfilled completely upon His return. So it says the, the prophets suffered. The prophets did not suffer because they were frauds or because they were pretenders or because they were preaching a false gospel. It's because they were faithful to God. That's why they suffered. They were faithful to God. Just like Jesus was faithful to God. Jesus was given a mission on this earth in His life. To go to the cross. To die on that cross. To experience a horrific death. And He was obviously opposed in so many ways leading up to it. And, but He still did it. He still went. 
He did not back down. He was firm upon His Father's commands. And we are to do the same. Jesus was mocked. He was insulted. He was spit on. And, and of course He was killed. For you. For me. For the church. Because He was faithful to God to the end. So suffering through evil for God's sake. And it entitles you actually to a great reward. When people make fun of you for following Jesus or call you a pushover, when you forgive or make peace, when they call you weak, when they threaten you for becoming a, a friend of someone who's an outcast, you have not failed and you are not doing wrong. The Bible says you are blessed. You are fortunate. Be happy. Congratulations to you because God will reward you. Rejoice, he says, because great is your reward in heaven. An eternal blessing promised to the church of Jesus Christ. Rejoice and be glad, church. I want to end with this story. Uh, maybe you know of this guy by the name of Louis Zamperini. Louis Zamperini was a, an Olympic athlete, a renowned, nationally recognized Olympic athlete. He ran in the 1936 Olympics. He actually placed eighth place in his race but he set a record for the fastest lap at that time. He was a, a runner at, the, uh, at USC, California, went to the 1936 Olympics, had every plan to go back um, to the next Olympics. But then the war started, and Louis got drafted into the war, and he became a bombardier. And uh, when they were one time flying over the Pacific Ocean, Louis and his crew um, on a rescue mission, Something malfunctioned, and they went down into the Pacific where they uh, drifted on a raft for 47 days until they were finally captured by the Japanese. So Louis and his other guys on the raft were taken into a POW camp where Louis would uh, become a prisoner of war for two and a half years. And for some uh, odd reason, what wasn't really odd is because he was uh, well known as a, a runner, there was this prison guard in one of these Japanese prison camps. They called him the bird. That was the nickname they had for this guy. They called him the bird. The bird, and he was fixated on Louis. He hated Louis. He wanted to make an example out of Louis because Louis was this famous, world-renowned athlete. And so, yeah, uh, the, the prison, uh, the POW camp, was, of course, was bad for everybody. It was especially bad for Louis. Louis was uh, tortured aggressively, way more than anybody else was abused aggressively way more than anybody else because of the bird. The bird had it out for Louis. He was fixated on Louis. He wanted to make an example out of him. And Louis' life was miserable for two and a half years. It was worse than everybody else because the bird wanted to destroy this man's life. Well, the war ended, of course, and, and uh, Louis went back home and he was recognized as a, a national war hero. In fact, he literally became a celebrity. He went all over the country speaking and with all these speaking engagements. And then Louis got married, but something happened to Louis. Uh, of course, the, the horrors of the war and what he experienced in this POW camp for two and a half years, it took its toll on him. And Louis' way to suppress that was alcohol. And he became an alcoholic and for about five years just drank and drank and his marriage was just, it was horrible. Louis' life, he, he would speak and then he would get drunk and he would even be drunk and speak. His life was a mess because he was the horrors of what he experienced. And Louis became angry. He became angry. And Louis was now fixated on hunting down the bird and killing him. In fact, for years, Louis was so fixated on this idea, he wanted to fly back to Japan. He wanted to find the bird. He wanted to kill him. He wanted to pay him back. He wanted revenge. This once athletic, world-renowned Olympic runner became victimized, malnourished in a punching bag of this fixated Japanese prison card, guard called the bird. Now Louis himself, years later, became fixated on going back to Japan. He wanted to kill this man. But something happened through the alcoholism, through the anger. Um, his wife invited Louis to a, a Billy Graham crusade in Los Angeles. And Louis went. And there was a, a moment during this crusade when Billy Graham was asking people to come forward to surrender their lives to Jesus and Louis found himself walking that aisle and he hit his knees and he cried out to God. He cried out to God. 
this alcoholic fixated man filled with anger got saved by the power of the Gospel because God Almighty saw a man who was poor in spirit. God saw a man who was poor in spirit. Louis cried out to God. And God heard him on high. And He rescued him. And long story short, God began to do a work in Louis' life. And He changed him through the power of His Holy Spirit. Louis became a different person because he was set apart by the Gospel of God. And instead of Louis being fixated on killing the bird, he was filled with... And instead of being filled with anger, hate, and revenge, Louis was fixated on Jesus. Louis, who was once angry, became merciful because he had humbled himself. He no longer desired justice but mercy. Louis no longer hated the bird. He loved him. He no longer wanted him dead but alive with Christ like himself. Louis no longer wanted to go to Japan to point fingers and kill and destroy, but to forgive. Louis Zamperini had seen God. And all he wanted was the bird to see him too. Take a look at this video. back to Japan, you, you shared the gospel with some of the very guards that mistreated you and you wanted to meet the bird, but you were told the bird was dead. He wasn't, but you didn't know that at the okay. time. But you wrote him a letter. Do you have that letter with you? I, I, yeah, I brought it with me. This is the letter that Louis wrote to the bird. You want me to read it? Yo, would you okay. read it please? Okay. This is to Master Shiro Watanabe. As a result of my prisoner of war experience under your unwarranted and original punishment, my post-war life became a nightmare. I, it was not so much due to the pain and suffering as it was to the tension of stress and humiliation that caused me to hate with a vengeance. Under your discipline, my rights not only as a prisoner but also as a human being were stripped from me. It was a struggle to maintain enough dignity and hope to live under the war's end. The post-war nightmares caused my life to crumble, but thanks to a confrontation with God through the evangelist Billy Graham, I committed my life to Christ. Love replaced the hate I had for you, and Christ even said, forgive your enemies and pray for them. As you probably know, I returned to Japan in 1952 and was graciously allowed to address all the Japanese war criminals at Sugamo Prison. I asked them about you and was told that you probably had committed harakiri, which I was sad to hear. At that moment, like the others, I also forgave you, and now I would hope that you would also become a Christian. Amen. That's uh, forgiveness. Uh, worship team can go ahead and come up. Uh, so that's Louis' life, and I believe Louis... Um, although not perfectly, really embodied the Beatitudes. Uh, he, he really walked in that. What, he, Louis took serious what Jesus said. A, a man who had experienced so much. You would think had uh, wartime and, and all that, he had every reason to be angry at the enemy. He had every reason to hate them. He had every reason to want revenge. He had every reason to seek justice. And he did like many of them probably did. But then something happened to Louis. He, he, he became a follower of Jesus. See, the Holy Spirit came to live inside Louis. When the Holy Spirit comes to live inside a person, all that anger and hate and revenge and justice it slowly begins to die away. And when Jesus takes over a person's life, even against our own will for walking according to His ways, obeying Him, believing what this says, the Holy Spirit begins to change who we are. We who were once quick to be judgmental and, and, and hate, we all of a sudden want to love people. Not because the world would, you know, does that. The world would uh, obviously persecute you for it and uh, judge you and, and hate you and dislike you and think you're weak. Because that's what the world does. But we're different. We're set apart. This is not our home. This is a temporary place. Don't glory in this world. Glory in what's to come. So Louis had uh, the ability to
to become the man that he did, not because of Louis, but because Jesus Christ, the hope of glory, lived inside him. What did Louis do? do? He, he cried out to God. God on high heard him. And he saved him. And he reconciled him to the Father. And his life changed drastically. And, and the same can be said for you and me. Who, who do you dislike right now? Who are you mad at? Who are you angry with? Who do you want justice for? Who, who do you lack mercy towards? Who do you need to love? Who have you not loved and, and now you, you are being pushed to love them? Who is that for you? Who do you need to forgive? Maybe you need to forgive yourself. Because when you forgive yourself, you have the capacity to forgive others. So maybe someone's in this room that you, just, you need to forgive yourself. And God Almighty, in this very moment, is saying, forgive yourself. For I have forgiven you. And now... Something amazing happens. You have the capacity to forgive others, and that's what changes the world, church. It's when the set apart become immersed in a, in a culture that is so against God. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. So, during our time of worship, I, I, I'm going to be up here. I want to invite you to come. I'd love to pray for you. I would love to pray for you. If you want to go in the prayer room, I would be happy to do that. I just want to pray. If there's someone that you need to forgive, I want to, during the worship song, I want, to, I want to ask you to forgive them. And then go reconcile with them. If there's someone you're angry at, whether it's a person or a nation or whatever, find it in your heart to view things through the lens of the gospel. Ask God to help you because we need His help. So church, stand and let's worship together.